You're watching A Court Leader's Advantage, a video podcast for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Local courts can offer an incredible opportunity for both defendants and the community. They're positioned precisely at a point to curtail dangerous behavior before it worsens. The array of problem-solving courts nationally that local courts manage, often on shoestring budgets, is astounding. This does not compensate for the fact that local courts are often neglected. They're frequently disparaged. And in some cases, they manifest structural flaws that clearly need to be corrected. This, while we remember that local courts are the place where most members of the public obtain their first-hand experience of courts and justice. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month, we're looking at some of the challenges local courts face, including how should local court judges be selected? Should all local court judges be attorneys? Should all defendants in matters before local courts be represented by counsel? And should all local courts be courts of record? We're also continuing our discussion of the three recent Harvard Law Review articles about local courts. Criminal Municipal Courts by Professor Alexandra Natapov. Kangaroo Courts by Sean Osei Owoso. And Abolished Municipal Courts by Brendan Rodiger. All three of these articles are available in the additional resources section on the podcast webpage. Here to discuss their perspectives on the questions posed and the articles are folks who deal with the challenges of local courts every day. They're judges and court administrators, all of whom work in municipal courts from around the country. Now, before we start our discussion, I want to advise you of a terminology topic. I'm intentionally using the term local court to cover a variety of courts which are usually not a component of a state court system. They include not only municipal courts, but also county courts, justice courts, mayor's courts, magistrate courts, recorder's courts, and alderman's courts. So let's join our panel. We're joined today by the Honorable Ed Spillane, presiding judge of the Municipal Court in College Station, Texas. The Honorable Mary Logan, judge of the Municipal Court in Spokane, Washington. Rashida Davis, court administrator for the Municipal Court in Atlanta, Georgia. Courtney Whiteside, Court Administrator of the Municipal Court in St. Louis, Missouri, and Betty King, Court Administrator for the Municipal Court in Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. Municipal courts are created and run by cities. This can lead to some potential conflicts of interest. The independence of these local courts can be compromised when, for example, the judge is also the town mayor, or in other cases, the city can both hire and fire the municipal court judge. Should we use another method for appointing local court judges? Judge Logan? You know, the question about appointed versus elected judges is uh, probably one of those long-standing issues. When our court was created, uh, we went through a panel interview um, and ultimately the three judges were indeed appointed, but they had to withstand election. Um, and that was within the first year. We are also a component of the regular state system for election for all judges, um, because that's our system here in the state of Washington. Can it be a problem? Yes, it can be if it is if the court is otherwise at the frankly the whim and whimsy of the executive branch. 
in the state of Washington, there's a, a series of rules, including what's known as GR 29, which really specifically defines the authority of the judge in reference to personnel, employees of the court, and the roles that we play, which are very separate from the executive branch. Um, the, the presiding judge could no more go into the mayor's office and hire or fire their personnel than the mayor can come into our office and hire or fire personnel. So the distinction, the very tall wall between the three branches has been built um, so that there are not those issues where there is encroachment. Now, having said that, I can tell you that I am on the um, Council for Independent Court Committee through our District and Municipal Court Judges Association because there are entities who have attempted this. And in fact, we're in a, a bit of a battle right now in Bellingham where this very problem has risen its very ugly head where um, a, the presiding judge was unaware of a personnel issue. And instead of it going through the normal paces where it would have been handled internally, um, including uh, interaction with the unions that were involved, the mayor stepped in inappropriately. So there's this, this frankly, misunderstanding about the separation of powers and the separate branch of government. So we have stepped up to re-inform them of the distinction and the necessity to have that. Um, because otherwise, as you say, the picture of that court really is though, as if the executive branch or the legislative branch would dictate what's happening in the judiciary. And that's not how we handle business here in the state of Washington, let alone in the city of Spokane. Um, where again, we have established that very distinct separate relationship with them. We're also in the city charter, which was something that we took designs to do when standing up the court. So there never would be this sort of women whimsy about collapsing a court because there was maybe a disagreement about how things were handled. Again, not that it's the executive branch or the legislative branch's place to make those sorts of decisions, but it's, it's worthwhile always having an open communicative relationship with them so there was a clear understanding about you know, paths that the, that the court is going to take, for example, with therapeutic courts. Um, so it really is a problem in some of the smaller entities, but it's been covered here by state law that, that absolutely provides distinguished relationships between each of the separate branches of government. Judge Spillane? You know, I would disagree with um, another method of appointing, essentially the alternative to appointing a judge is electing a judge. And in Texas, most of our judges, other than municipal court judges, some are elected. Most are elected. In fact, they have a political party. And I think that most, if you talk to most judges, they would agree that this system does not work compared to the majority of states that have some appointment system. Um, the, the, the problem with electing and and especially if you had a political party, then you have all sorts of other conflicts, you have uh, money issues, et cetera. However, obviously, uh, I think there is a comp, I don't think a judge, a judge is part of the judicial branch, and I think a, a city needs to have a clear judicial branch. So a judge should not be a mayor as well. Um, I think there are problems. Uh, we have this in Texas too with county judges that are administrative and then also a court county judges. Uh, and, and one of the ways you do that is that a judge has a term of office. Um, and so I, I, 
I think every judge should have a term of office. A judge should not just be hired at will. They should have a term of office um, in which they're, you know, protected under, under the law, other than obviously, you know, there, there can be certain situations. And the Commission for Judicial Conduct, most states have that to do uh, judicial discipline, which is independent of the city. So, uh, uh, but I, I, I think the appointment actually is an efficient and a good way uh, in terms of seeing who the qualified candidates are, but the, but the judges do have to have a term of office and it has to be very clearly established that the municipal court is a judicial branch. It's not part of the executive branch or you know any other branch. Now, one of the most serious claims, I think Mr. Rodiger makes this claim, is that local courts are instruments for preserving social order by extracting wealth from the community's poor. How do you respond to this claim? Judge Logan? Well, I try not to react to that emotionally. Um, and I understand that, frankly, there may very well be jurisdictions where the appearance of that is true. That um, there has been an awful lot that has been done to chase a, a minimal fine um, that, that, frankly, in the state of Washington wouldn't happen. Uh, and I think that we are, I hope not unique, but we are at the forefront of being very compassionate about and passionate about not having money drive the train in any of our courts. And that's all the way to through our, our superior court, which is the highest of the trial courts, to our district courts, to our municipal courts. So those are the general jurisdiction courts versus the more limited jurisdiction courts. It, it has been made clear with the legislature. It's been made clear with by virtue of review with the Supreme Court that money should not be driving this um, and that we have every right to stand up and, and clarify with the other branches of government that, that it is inappropriate to have those expectations from us. Uh, this, the city of Spokane doesn't have its own you know, industry. Like you think about in Seattle, there are a number of really large entities that help drive uh, their economy. For us, it really is um, just the, the shopping, the taxes on shopping. Um, and so we have made it very, we have had quarterly reviews with the city council. So they understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, and they do not have that expectation that we should be bringing in money. And, and we have the good fortune of having a number of attorneys that are on city council. And so they have a, a clear understanding as well um, that how inappropriate it would be to place us in those circumstances, but it doesn't end with us. In Spokane County and, and in the state of Washington, um, there are many, many small jurisdictions where, you know, they are, are agricultural based, particularly on the east side. And so, for example, when there is, are treatments that um, are imposed that are not covered under insurance, a financial inability to pay for that treatment does not result in somebody being returned to jail. We have to come up with an alternative um, so that we can certainly address whatever underlying uh, behavioral health issue needs to be addressed, but they're not gonna go to jail about something like that, nor are we gonna take heat from the other branches of government for not generating funds uh, by virtue of the sentencing that goes on in our courts. Betty? I agree completely with everything that Judge Logan said about courts and how we approach um, the indigency factors. Uh, since 
2008, we have been very, very strong proponents in changing the narrative about how the consumer meets the demand. And what we have done in terms of our indigency, we have indigency uh, hearings that are conducted by our judge prior to sentencing. We follow the Supreme Court's collection and fine court costs, though they put out guidelines about six years ago. So those guidelines are taken in as a factor. Further, we offer a robust community service program that has um, educational programs in such as a GED um, acquisition of it. If the individual gets their driver's license, we offer a driver's license recovery program. We also um, do reminders through a partnership that we have with the Southern Poverty Law Center so that they are reminded that they have to come back to court and don't miss inadvertently miss court. So some of the things that we're doing is more progressive in terms of reaching out to the person and finding out where they are. But in 2019, the city of Birmingham established a pretrial services division. In the pretrial services division, we had an opportunity to engage the individual as soon as they encounter the court system create an assessment and to know whether or not they have the ability to forward bail. We've removed any bail on a minor traffic violation and if the individual does not have the ability to afford bail, we've already assessed that. We also provided services where we hired social workers to do these, to provide wraparound services for those individuals after they have need and do a warm handoff if, they, if needed. So when, they are, when we talk about the recovery plan that we offer to individuals that are encountering the justice system, then we do things that engage them as soon as they encounter and take them all the way through post-trial. And in post-trial, we offer a literacy program. Any of those programs that have been identified thus far, they are given community service credits for doing such as getting your GED. Put you back on your level footing so that you have a chance, an opportunity to get back to where you wanna be in the community. So those are some of the progressive programs, the, lit, the financial literacy, job skill training program, if they're not um, employed or they're underemployed. So uh, if in addition, we partner with one of the local community colleges so that if they get their GED, they can move on to progress to a, a, an associate degree with community college. So these are some of the programs that we engage. They're part of, they're located right here. There's no cost to any of those services. If the individual has been declared indigent, they're declared indigent for the full purpose of every service that we provide through the court. Additionally, you inquired about whether or not there's a mandatory tax or fees or cost assessment for those who are indigent. No, it does not apply. All of those are waived if the individual is declared indigent. They are waived completely. So it does not apply. They will not have additional fines, costs, or fees. So they receive the services, as well as we have the opportunity to offer some type of rehabilitation and hold them accountable for any action that may have been taken. In his piece, Abolished Municipal Courts, Mr. Rodiger pointedly offers no alternative to local courts. Is the alternative the creation of autonomous zones, such as we saw in Seattle last June? Rashida? Uh, I think, uh, no pun intended, I think the jury's still out on whether autonomous zones actually works and meets the needs of the community. Um, here in Atlanta, our court handles about 200,000 cases. And I don't see the state court being able to absorb that caseload. <laughs> we meet a very immediate need when it comes to very minor traffic offenses 
or something as nuanced as um, dealing with homelessness. And so we have a homeless court here that helps to add resources and time that other courts of record may not have the ability to do so. So I am uh, not going to agree that we should abolish municipal courts. I'm all for it. Courtney? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, that was the kindest way I could think to respond to that question. Um, in, in his article, he refers to municipal courts as better understood um, as a component of uh, modern police bureaucracy and that they're served to expand uh, police power and legitimize police activity. But again, I, you know, I sound like a little bit of a broken record here. I think that echoes the need for a clear uh, division of the branch of government. But when you start looking at these autonomous zones, you know, when, when we first started looking at them, they came out, my first thought was the same as Rashida's, like the state court could never handle that. But nowhere does it say that the state court would handle it. It doesn't, you know, these autonomous zones do not define who's making the law, who's enforcing the law, who's administering and interpreting uh, the law. And it's just, it's more of just like a free for all. And to me, that seemed like Mr. Rod, that was exactly what Mr. Rodiker was spouting off about the municipal courts as a whole. So no, I, I, I do not agree with his, um, his ideal plan is to drastically diminish or abolish municipal courts. But I did find one thing redeemable in, in his article, and that was his, um, his discussion at, at the very end where uh, you know, the potentially the, the most difficult part of municipal court reform is that it's a need for control uh, by by all parties. You know, the, the, the courts are saying, you know, the court is under the court's control and under the judicial branch of government. And the city is just grasping, um, in many instances, just grasping for control. So I think it really does, you know, that need for control really does butt up against uh, moving forward with a lot of a potentially needed reform, depending upon, you know, your court and, and what's going on in your region. But so I will give him that. But other than that, no. Can I say one thing, Peter, too, just on um, if you're saying abolish municipal courts, you're either saying get rid of municipal courts or you're saying get rid of what we have jurisdiction over. And, um, you know, all the studies show that we hear the most cases, see the most people. So uh, probably what they mean is just get rid of municipal courts. But I haven't seen anyone that's arguing that. Look, see, we have states, Florida's one. There's about 10 states that do not have these lower courts at all. Uh, very few, which is, again, another, you know, probably means that municipal courts matter. But my guess is if you looked at these states and how they handle similar cases that our municipal courts handle, you'll see that they're not handled more efficiently, more fairly, uh, in a comparison, because we know that when courts specialize and, and can focus on specific types of cases, that we do a better job in terms of efficiency and also fairness. So if, he, if, if they're really serious, if the academic world's serious about it, look at those states where we, they don't have it. And I wait to see that because I don't see that. I just you know kind of see get rid of these courts mm -hmm. uh, yeah. without actually seriously looking at what would happen. Not all local court judges are attorneys. Should all judges be attorneys? Judge Logan? I believe that they should be. I, I do. Um, I think that you've got to have that sound grounding in the law 
um, before sitting on, on matters uh, of these varieties. Uh, again, in, for us, the, all judges are attorneys. Um, there was a time where that, there was a one limited way of becoming a judge and it was, and I can't even remember, I think it was a justice court, um, but they have, that has been eliminated even in the small communities. Uh, so there is always at, at least a municipal or district court judge and they have all had to um, not only go to law school, but pass the bar. Uh, so I, I do have a bias that way. I think it's important, particularly because of the effect that we can have on people's lives. When you have the ability to throw somebody in jail, you darn well better know uh, your criminal procedure, your evidence, your you know all the bases, uh, the Constitution, um, before that takes place. Courtney, well, I'm sure that there are some fine non-attorneys uh, serving on our benches across the nation. I, I do believe that that judges should be attorneys. Um, here in Missouri, uh, you can be a non-attorney judge if the municipality that you are serving in has a population of less than 1,500 people. Some would argue that should that, should that municipality even be allowed to have a court? Um, and that's a whole, a whole nother deal. But uh, I, I think an attorney is one that is studied in, uh, in law and the application thereof. And I think that uh, someone with, with such credentials should be a person that presides over any court of law. I think it adds a level of um, credibility to the, to the court's practices and just the overall existence. Um, I think that was discussed in, um, in the kangaroo courts article at, at some length. But um, again, I think there's some fine, uh, fine non-attorney judges uh, but it is also a, uh, a specialized court, and I, I just think it would be better uh, presided over by an attorney. In many local courts, defendants are not represented by counsel. Now, legally, defendants are not required to have representation unless there is a risk of substantial jail time. On the other hand, some defendants end up being fined thousands of dollars, which can significantly hobble their lives. Morally, should all defendants have representation? Betty? In an adversarial system, all individuals need to have the access to an attorney. They need to be licensed to practice law in the state. And I think that on the first part of your question, whether or not a judge should be licensed. In Alabama, they are all licensed to practice law in the state of Alabama, all judges are. We conduct bench trials at our local courts, our municipal courts as you termed it and they still have the right to appeal for trial de novo or jury trial. For those individuals that are being sentenced and whether or not they should have counsel and have counsel representing them due to potential fine, prior to sentencing, an indigency hearing is conducted by the judge. The judge conducts that indigency hearing and determine whether or not the person's ability to pay because they may not, just, may not be indigent. However, they may have a fixed income or limited income. So we offer payment plans, community service, alternative sentencing. All of those things are all inclusive of what are the opportunities for how this person can be made whole and held accountable simultaneously. So those absorbent fees you referenced, those are limited by the guidelines that the Supreme Court has set forth. But prior to that, we were already prescribing to that. So the judges that were brought on during our, when we hired our pretrial services and, and engaged those services and determined, hey, 
It's been five years now we've had this in place. So we know that this is successful, it works, it creates the chance for those to be heard and while their rights are being protected. So um, all of each of those factors all bring together to make sure that each person has chance to do what is right. Judge Belaine? Yeah, it's not just morally, I think legally, there's a US Supreme Court called Alabama v. Shelton, which I think stands for the proposition that if jail time is in any way possible in the future with a case, then that person who's indigent should have the right to have representation, uh, uh, appointment of representation or, or, or otherwise. Uh, and so I do think we have, uh, and it's a kind of a future perhaps what we will see beyond Ferguson is where courts, when people are not paying their fines and fees and, and courts go through what's called a capious profine and they, they sentence them later to jail time. I think that it, the, and usually people who do jail time for $200 fines, $500 fines, a lot of times they're indigent, right? I mean, you know, that's just as, as basic common sense. Uh, and representation means at the time when you did your plea, it's not representation when you're going to be sentenced to jail. So, uh, so yes, I think legally we have, you know, a problem in the system. Uh, should they all the time? Well, in a perfect world, I would love that. I will tell you again, uh, you know, I know in my court about 90%, 95%, maybe more than I think, than I'm even saying there, are pro se. Um, with cases that are fine only. They can hire an attorney, but they represent themselves. And so I don't think with traffic tickets and other things, as long as jail time is not a future possibility, I don't think we're gonna have appointment. Um, what we're seeing more states going to is creating, turning these into civil type of cases uh, versus criminal. And, uh, and, and I think that will be more where states will go to. They're not going to appoint attorneys uh, to everyone with every type of a criminal charge where it's only a fine. They're just not going to do that. Though in a perfect world, you wish people did. Are your prosecutors willing to talk to uh, pro se litigants or um, yeah. they are for the most part? There's, there's yeah, several so we, jurisdictions. We, we said anyone that pleads not guilty gets set up with what we call a pretrial conference. And a lot of times that's because the prosecutor can show, you know, videotape and, and explain things to them. So that actually works. Uh, very well. So yes, they do speak to them. I, again, we have a, at one of the results of the pandemic, a good result uh, is that we created a YouTube uh, uh, channel to stream live our court proceedings on Zoom, but I have put some educational features on there. Now I'm not giving them legal advice, but I present them educational features on how to, you know, get an expunction, clear, clear your record and, and other things. Uh, so courts, I think are challenged by the fact that people are uh, representing themselves, but it is kind of a natural result. But I think courts are in danger if they're sending people to jail and they didn't have representation and that person's indigent. I, I, and, and it is happening in a lot of states, but I think that's the danger point where it's not just a moral, I think legally uh, people have a right to representation. Not all local courts are courts of record. Should all courts be courts of record? Rashida? I am going to say no, all courts should not be courts of record. I think uh, this creature uh, was created for a, a reason. Uh, with courts of record, of course, uh, they, they tend to be a bit slower and not able to process and handle the volume of caseload that these 
other courts or the lower courts don't um, kind of have problems dealing with. Like I said, our court handles about 200,000 cases. Uh, I like to think that we do it pretty efficiently. <laughs> and I just don't, I don't know um, if other courts would be able to handle that. But uh, the benefit of these courts is if someone wants to have a jury trial or um, have a heightened level of review, that is at their disposal and that's at their discretion. So it's not like a, a one take all. They do have a, a, a right to uh, jury trial and they can take it to state court if they, if they choose to. So I think for the individuals who want to just resolve their citation, it's just a simple speeding and they want to either pay their fine or do community service. I think this is the best positioned um, vehicle to do so. We're a court of record, and that's different from the majority of um, municipal courts that are established under uh, Chapter 479 of the Missouri Statute are municipal divisions, and they are not courts of record. As a county municipal court, we are established under Section 66. So we are a court of record, and our appeals, we don't participate in the trial de novo process. Our appeals go directly to the appellate courts. Um, so it, it is a little, it, it is different. And I will say that it is extra confusing for the public <laughs> to try to, to figure out um, what's what. So it, 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 and I do agree, sometimes it can be a wee slower. When you say making a record, are you talking about the court's use of a court reporter or electronic equipment? Electronic. Betty? I'm not sure that all courts would need to be courts of record as you as defined as a court of record. Our courts are not courts of record. However, there's some specific documentation that judges will in, will place on a case that says that denotes what it needs to happen. For the courts of record, those courts of general jurisdiction and for trial de novo, those happen at that level at the general general jurisdiction level. However, at the lower court level, with that being a court of record we have the ability and have launched our virtual court. Our virtual courts are videotaped. So those individuals may in fact have access to that. And during COVID, that was one of the better outcomes of COVID, that we realized that there's some things that we could do better, that we could improve and have it as an alternative or an option for them. So for an individual that may want to have the record of the case, so if they go through a virtual proceeding, it, it all, all of the proceeding may be recorded. However, for the trial de novo, it starts over and you're going to get a new trial starting over and you potentially may have a jury trial. But a court of record at the local level of what we're doing, we're doing the hands-on. We're doing the meet you here where you are. And those things may not be accessible if you're going through all of the other trappings of other courts that have been described in those articles. What we're doing is that we create the opportunities and the opportunities are created through documentation, not necessarily a recording, but we have the same documentation so that any forms, any agreements that you enter into, any pleadings that you provide, all of those are in writing. So all of those things transpire in writing. However, it's not an official court of record. My thanks to Courtney Whiteside, Betty King, Rashida Davis, Judge Ed Spillane and Judge Mary Logan for their perspectives on local courts and the challenges they face. As I alluded to at the start of this episode, local courts deserve more attention by the court community. Let's make this episode the start of an ongoing conversation. My thanks finally to you court professionals joining us on today's episode. Despite the obstacles you face, you continue to ensure that the court's business gets done. 
Thank you. Catch us in September for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.